Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Colin Quinn. We'll start, as we always do, with the region's news. China hosted a massive parade in Beijing to commemorate the 70th anniversary of its victory in World War II this week. 30 world leaders observed the People's Liberation Army's display of military might, which ranged from foot soldiers to advanced fighter aircraft. In a speech before the parade, President Xi Jinping announced the PLA will cut the number of its troops by 300,000. In South Korea, a dispute over whether to continue holding state-administered bar exams escalated this week. The bar exams are slated to be phased out in 2017, yet law school graduates preparing for the exam and serving lawyers are calling for its retention. Meanwhile, enrolled law students polled widely favoured its abolition and protested against calls to continue the exam. On Thursday, a group of 700 Korean lawyers announced the creation of a new association to lobby for the exam's retention. In India, Narendra Modi's government announced it has made a bid to be a major player in global internet governance by trying to persuade the United States to locate a root server in India. The U.S., Indian officials said, is favorably disposed to the idea after it was raised in a U.S.-India cyber dialogue in August. There are only 13 root servers worldwide, 10 are in the U.S., 2 in Europe, and 1 in Japan. In Tokyo, the government and ruling coalition have decided to set aside a plan to put security-related bills to a vote in the upper house of the legislature on September 11th. The Liberal Democratic Party are still negotiating with the Democratic Party of Japan's leaders in the upper house, but could choose to enact the controversial legislation by sending the bills back to the House of Representatives under a rule stipulated in the Constitution. If the upper house does not vote on legislation within 60 days, the lower house can pass it a second time with a two-thirds majority to make it law. In Southeast Asia, a boat carrying at least 70 people capsized off the West Malaysian coast in the Strait of Malacca early Thursday. Malaysian authorities said they assumed the passengers were Indonesian migrants attempting to reach the Malaysian coast. While 15 people had been rescued as of Thursday evening, another 14 were confirmed dead, with the remainder still missing. Thousands of Indonesians are believed to work illegally in Malaysia and periodically travel across the strait. And that's the news. We turn now to the Chinese Navy, which for the first time deployed five vessels in international waters in the Bering Sea off the US state of Alaska this week, coincidentally timing the voyage during President Obama's much publicized visit. While a Pentagon spokesperson described the ships as non-threatening, this marks another benchmark achieved for China's rapidly modernizing and expanding naval fleet. My colleague and editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Jeff Bean, sat down with Paul Schwartz to discuss China's navy and the key role Russia has played through arms sales. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Bean. Our guest this week is Paul Schwartz, a senior associate with the Russia Eurasia program here at CSIS. Paul is the author of a new report titled Feeding the Dragon, which examines how China's navy, or the People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLAN, has benefited from Russian defense sales and training in recent years. Yet, our listeners will recall that ties between Moscow and Beijing deteriorated in the second half of the Cold War, and with this in mind, the PLA Navy is still a relatively young branch in in China's armed forces. Uh, In fact, the PLA fleet has expanded dramatically during an intense period of warship building and modernization over the last 20 years or so as China attempts to grapple with challenges in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, and expand on its strategy of anti-access aerial denial. Paul, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here, Jeff. 
Can you explain why, at least in the case of the, the modern uh, PLA Navy, uh, these defense sales and uh, Russian influence on the PLAN really began in the early to mid-1990s? Sure, Jeff. Uh, it's important to remember, first of all, that the Sino-Soviet alliance ended in the early 1960s. In fact, this was followed by a fairly bitter 30-year period of hostility, a Cold War of their own. And during that entire time, uh, the Soviets provided zero military assistance for the Chinese. Now, the Chinese were able to continue to evolve some of the military equipment that the Soviets had provided previously to that to uh, incrementally improve it and, and increase their capabilities. And they also benefited to a certain extent from uh, inputs of Western military technology after the Nixon-Kissinger opening. But despite that, their military capability continued to fall further and further behind those of advanced militaries, including both in Russia and in the West. Um, but all of this was brought home starkly to the Chinese during the Gulf War when they saw what the U.S. was able to do with some of the advanced precision weaponry that had become available. And the Chinese, uh, this gave the Chinese a, a greater urgency for the need to modernize their armed forces. And that urgency was enhanced even further during the 1996 Taiwan Strait Crisis when the Chinese were forced to back down in the face of a U.S. show of strength in that area. Uh, so they needed to modernize, but their defense industry remained significantly underdeveloped, and uh, they needed to look to external suppliers. But they couldn't purchase from the West anymore because after Tiananmen, they had been subject to a comprehensive arms embargo. Fortunately for them at the time, the, the Russian defense companies finding themselves cut off from state orders and the economic chaos following the collapse had become desperate for revenue from arms exports. This led to a sustained and long-term arms trading relationship, which continues to this, to this day. And uh, it really explains why the, the buildup of the Russian assistance for the buildup of Chinese, uh, China's Navy is really more of a post-Cold War and more modern phenomenon. Just in, in broad terms, uh, what types of naval platforms and hardware has Russia sold to China? Well, Russia has transferred a broad range of <clears throat> advanced military equipment <clears throat> excuse me, that has contributed significantly to the enhancement of China's military forces and has had broad applica applicability to the buildup of China's anti-access uh, capability as well. Among the first systems transferred to the Chinese were four Sovremini destroyers, which at the time of their transfer were far and away the best surface warships in China's fleet. And they immediately provided several benefits, including uh, uh, being coming equipped with advanced sunburn anti-ship cruise missiles, which were uh, far and away the best anti-ship cruise missiles in the fleet as well. And they also provided the, the, the first real area air defense capability for China's fleet. Since that time, Russia has also transferred a number of other quite uh, advanced anti-ship cruise missile systems, including the Club Sizzler, which is a submarine-launched supersonic cruise missile and the KH-31 Krypton, which is a, a high supersonic air launch cruise missile. Collectively, these have uh, significantly improved China's precision strike capability. The Russians have also transferred a number of advanced air defense platforms for the Chinese, including most notably the SAN-20 Gargoyle, which was China's first true long-range air defense systems and continues to constitute the, the longest range platform in China's fleet. Since that time, Russian defense assistance 
has also been crucial to help China to develop a number of its own sophisticated naval uh, systems, including surface warships, anti-ship cruise missiles, radar systems, and air defense platforms of its own. And how uh, you, you alluded to this in your in your response to what types of platforms they've sold and the capabilities it's it's provided. How has this benefited China's regional security strategy, in your view? Well, Russian technology has been instrumental in enabling China's maritime forces to close the gap with advanced Western navies, uh, including up to and including the U.S. Navy. And it's, it's also been, for that reason, equally important for developing China's ability to fulfill its anti-access strategy. Prior to the commencement of Russian defense assistance, for example, China's precision strike capability remained quite limited. The best anti-ship cruise missile in China's fleet, for example, the YJ-8, was a subsonic missile with a limited range of just 65 nautical miles. Today, the fleet's precision strike capability has been radically improved by Russian supersonic cruise missiles capable of striking at long range and with great penetrating power. In addition, new, Russian, new Chinese supersonic missiles based on Russian technology have also contributed to the enhancement of China's precision strike capability. So you see this combination of Russian technology and then Chinese derivatives based on, on Russian inputs of engineering support and technology as well, which has significantly enhanced this. Um, collectively, these systems, along with radar systems and air defense platforms, have given China's fleet a much better chance of giving effect to its, its anti-access strategy. They've allowed the fleet to operate increasing, at increasing distance from shore because they're no longer as dependent on shore-based air defense platforms for protection, and they've allowed the fleet to stand up much better against well-armed modern U.S. warships because of the increased capability of their anti-ship strike systems. Now, from one perspective, the Russians may hold their own national security concerns with regard to, to China, and indeed, as you mentioned, they have in the past, uh, not to mention intellectual property rights concerns in terms of the re-engineering or uh, copying of equipment. So do you think this trend of sales will continue based on the current geopolitical uh, setup around the world? And if so, what do you think U.S. policymakers should look out for? Well, you are quite correct. There are, in fact, many in Russia that worry about China's rising military power, and they continue to question the wisdom of supplying such a potential, for, a formidable potential adversary with advanced military equipment. And Russia's also been concerned about Chinese reverse engineering activities, which have helped China to further narrow the gap between China's military and, and Russia's as well. In, a sen in essence, they've been free riding on the substantial investment the Russians have made in developing this technology. And to add insult to injury, they often develop new systems, which they then offer for sale on the export markets in direct competition with the underlying Russian systems. Still, I think we should expect sales from Russia to China to stay at their current levels or even more likely to increase over the near term for three reasons. First, the Russians could clearly use the money, the Russian defense companies especially, because of the economic slowdown that's followed the Ukraine crisis and uh, low oil prices, Russia's inevitably going to have to, uh, to, to uh, cut their defense spending to some degree. So these defense companies can see that enhanced sales to China could help them to make up the shortfall. More importantly, Russia wants to keep China happy. This, is, this has become uh, critical after the Ukraine crisis 
because Russia has become increasingly estranged from the West and needs the Chinese support more and more to, to help to offset that. In addition, they're looking to the Chinese to help Russia to circumvent the Western sanctions regime, especially to uh, maintain access to high technology. Finally, Russia believes to some extent it can, like, it can manage the risk associated with transfer of advanced military equipment to China for two reasons. First of all, much of the equipment that Russia has transferred is more suitable for use in China's maritime regions. It's more suitable for a potential maritime conflict with the U.S. Naval equipment, submarines, long-range uh, maritime search radars. These are not, this is not the kind of equipment that China can uh, use, that could potentially use in a future land campaign against Russia itself, although there are exceptions to that. But secondly, I think the Russians have learned over time in dealing with the Chinese since the end of the Cold War that reverse engineering can only get the Chinese so far. Uh, in certain areas, the Chinese have been able to use reverse engineering to close the gap very quickly, so the building of major surface warships, for example. But in other areas, they've continued to struggle, especially the uh, development of aircraft, of advanced aircraft engines, which they've been trying to replicate for many years without much success. So. For both of those two reasons, I believe that the Russians think that they can effectively manage the risk of transfer of all this advanced military equipment to China to some degree. I think in some cases they may be overplaying their hand a little bit uh, because the Chinese have proven themselves quite capable of uh, incorporating foreign technology and eventually learning to develop it indigenously. But Nonetheless, I think you're going to see a significant upturn. The thing that policymakers should look for is whether three large-scale transactions that have been in the works for several years are ultimately consummated. The first of those is the transfer of the Russian S-400 air defense system, which is its latest and most advanced system. The two have already announced that that, that sale is going to go through, although delivery will take place in the future. Well, there are two other sales in the works right now as well. The sale of Su-35 flanker aircraft. These are Russia's latest and greatest fourth-generation-plus combat interceptor. Uh, there's been a negotiation ongoing for the transfer of 24 of those to China over the last several years. It appears to be close to signature, but it's been delayed repeatedly, so we'll have to see if that sale can uh, be completed as well. The final sale involves the transfer of sophisticated Lada-class diesel-electric submarines from Russia to China. Again, there's been a proposed transfer of four of these for, for the last two or three years. Uh, the sale hasn't been completed. Uh, there's been some talk of maybe re-engineering that to, instead of a s sale of submarines outright, it would involve technology transfer and potential co-development efforts. But if those two additional sales go through, then I think you're now, we will we'll now have entered a new phase in Sino-Russian defense cooperation. We could see a significant increase in Russian transfers to China, and even more importantly, uh, joint Rush, uh, research and development and co-production of advanced military equipment. Paul, we'll have to watch that really closely. Thanks for joining us today. It's been my pleasure, Jeff. That was Paul Schwartz. And now on to our one to watch. While China's military power is increasing, the PLA still has its critics. Among them are ornithologists and biologists. A recent report for Science magazine details how a team of rhesus macaque monkeys have been trained to remove birds' nests from trees surrounding airfields in northern China. Birds' nests can be a problem if they're sucked into the intakes of China's advanced fighter jets, including the J-20 and J-31. 
It has happened so frequently that the Chinese military felt compelled to train the male monkeys to remove nests of all types of birds. A military spokesperson explained that many airfields around Beijing are situated near the East Asian-Australasian flyway for migratory birds, which has in turn disrupted fighter aircraft operation. Scientists criticized the policy for harming migratory birds, which will detrimentally impact their population, including birds found only in China and Mongolia. That's our show for this week. You can always find more at cogitated.com and csis.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also check out our island tracker and maritime-specific analysis on the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, or AMTI, microsite. I'm Colm Quinn. Thanks for listening.